1: Hello friends and neighbors, welcome to today's episode of The Bill Press Pod. What a great country we live in, every four years we choose our leaders and then four years later we do it all over again. If we like them, we keep them, if we don't, we throw them out. (laughs) Well, that's the way it used to work, but not this time. Even though Joe Biden won the election big time more votes than any other presidential candidate in history, Donald Trump still refuses to concede. And as the Washington Post discovered in a shocking survey, out of 249 Republicans in Congress, only 27 are willing to admit that Biden won. 220 say the election's still undecided, and two of them insist that Trump, not Biden, won. How did we get into this mess? And more importantly, how do we get out of it? Does our democracy survive? Well, today for some insights and answers, we turn to Ron Brownstein, whom I believe is one of the smartest political historians and strategists in the country. You see him often on television, you read him in The Atlantic. Ron Brownstein's a senior political analyst for CNN and editorial director for Atlantic Media. Ron joined us from his home in Los Angeles. Ron Brownstein, good to uh, catch up with you again. And thanks for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod.
2: Bill, yeah, always good to talk to you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. So look, Ron, you and I have been around this a long time, this political American politics, but we're going through or suffering through... Two strange political scenarios I don't think we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. We've got a president of the United States who a month later still refuses to accept the results of the election and a Republican Party, uh, which uh, for the most part is unwilling the members to do anything, the leaders to do anything to criticize the president for that. They won't even recognize the president elect. Have you ever seen anything like this before?
2: No, I don't think anybody's seen anything like this before, Uh, you know, and uh, it is both shocking and not, right? I mean, it's obviously shocking that an election that was decided by 7 million votes uh, in which courts around the country have laughed out of the courtroom, the the accusations of fraud from uh, the Trump campaign, which, you know, appear increasingly unhinged. It is on the one hand shocking that so few congressional Republicans have been essentially willing to acknowledge that the sky is blue and that Joe Biden won. But on the other hand, it's not shocking because because it follows four years in which they have followed, the congressional Republicans have followed Trump deeper and deeper into the water of uh, violating democratic, small d democratic norms and traditions. I mean, this is the same party that found nothing to complain about when he openly tried to extort the government of Ukraine uh, to manufacture dirt on his opponent uh, and didn't really raise a peep, or still to this point, and not raise a peep as, as he's become the first president ever to try to tilt the census to the advantage of one party or weaponize the Postal Service. You know, we are focused so much on the unique transgressive nature of Trump himself, but what's happening is much bigger and broader than him, and I don't think we have a precedent for it in American politics uh, to for the way that the Republican Party is showing itself willing to run through the rules of small-D democracy in order to hold power.
1: Right. You know, uh, I know you recently wrote about this, and I had seen the parallel, too. Uh, there was one other time there was a Republican who was making wild... Uh, unfounded yeah. charges. Uh, and the Republican Party, with the sole exception maybe of Margaret Chase Smith, yeah. uh, to, we're course, we're talking about the McCarthy era. Right. Uh, tell us about that. In,
2: right, in, right. right. I wrote about that this week. I think that you, what Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and the Republican leaders are doing now in abetting and enabling these poisonous conspiracy theories from Trump, which are having real world consequences that we can talk about in a minute, is comparable and may even be more abject than the way the Republican leadership in the early 1950s surrendered uh, to Joe McCarthy. Uh, Robert Taft, who was the Mitch McConnell of his day, the Senate Republican leader, Mr. Republican, uh, multiple uh, time candidate for the GOP presidential nomination, you know, privately, he acknowledged from the beginning that McCarthy's charges of communist infiltration, a conspiracy so immense, Uh, in McCarthy's phrase, were wild and unsubstantiated and damaging. Um, But he saw them as kind of a tactical weapon against the Truman administration, which is when Mm -hmm. all of this this started. Um, And he was willing to go along with it, Um, uh, as were the vast majority of Republicans. There were about six or seven who joined Margaret Chase Smith on the floor uh, to condemn McCarthy early on. She was a first-term Republican senator, from um, uh, Maine, uh, but most of the party went along uh, because they thought, A, that he was helping them against Democrats, and B, they were scared of him. Now, what does that sound like? Uh, you know, that was that, that that could easily be applied to today. Of course, when Eisenhower came in as a Republican president, McCarthy right. didn't stop. He kept going. Uh, and then you saw broader concern, uh, and finally McCarthy kind of immolated himself in the Army McCarthy hearings with Joseph Welch said, uh, at Long last, sir, have, uh, have you no decency. Um, uh, but it took a very long time. And even at the very bitter end, when the final censure of McCarthy was voted on in 1954, only half the Senate Republicans voted to uh, censure I think what we're seeing now, history will regard as at least as bad uh in the sense that there were probably more Republicans who, who stood up to McCarthy by the end than are standing up to trump uh, by the end but mitch McConnell is certainly I think going to stand next to Taft in history uh, as uh, as someone who you know when, when the when the chips were really down put short-term partisan interest over the long-term interest of the country and you have to ask yourself, does all of this drain away once Trump leaves the stage, or is there something right. larger happening uh, that is going to be changing our politics through the next decade, through the twenty twenties?
1: Well, that's a big question. I guess is uh, one of the big questions. I mean, uh, does Trumpism survive, and is Trumpism the
2: n- now the Republican Party? Um, I think I don't. You know, obviously, we don't know for sure. But there is a self-fulfilling dynamic in uh, changes like this. Uh, You know, Trumpism defined as kind of an uh, ethno-nationalist appeal to racial resentment and anti-elite sentiment uh, with an authoritarian bent. Um, has an audience, as we have seen. It has a right. bigger audience than I think most people expected uh, in this uh, in this election. We can talk about the different ways of the measuring that audience. Uh, but what it does, what it clearly did, was drive away a lot of white-collar, college-educated, center-right suburban voters who probably voted mostly Republican in the past, um, uh, mostly primarily on economic issues. They, you know, lower taxes, less regulation, uh, all of that they could not abide many aspects of Trumpism, the volatility, the vulgarity, uh, the open racism. Um, so once they leave the Republican coalition, what's left behind? What's left behind is Trumpier. Um, yeah. It is more non-urban, non-college, uh, uh, you know, uh, evangelical. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, what would be the electoral basis for a run against Trumpism for the 2024 nomination, even if he doesn't run, you know. Um, And obviously, there are very different opinions about whether he can retain his influence or whether it will fade. I actually think he can retain a lot of influence. Um, But even if he is not personally on the ballot, uh, the voters who are the most resistant to Trump's definition of the party, if Biden plays his cards well, they're going to be you know, thinking more, thinking of themselves more as Democrats over time, and so uh, there's a possibility this is a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, in 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 the uh, in the party, and also let's face it, there hasn't been a lot of uh, profiles and courage or pushback. Against, <laughs> right? Who is the who is the standard bearer around which you would now organize, other than Mitt Romney? Uh, you know, a kind of um, resistance to Trumpism. And we see it again in this post-election period. The fact that so few Republicans can say the obvious that Biden won this election, there was certainly not massive fraud on a scale big enough or any, you know, any scale. Uh, The fact that they can't even say that shows, I think, how hard it's going to be to change direction.
1: Right. Isn't it stunning uh, that we now consider as a profile in courage the fact that someone would simply say
2: Biden won? Yes. Yes, it is. And, you know, we don't get here in a day, right, Bill? I mean, you don't get here in a day and you don't get here without the complicity of the party. I mean, this has been step by step by step. Trump has taken the measure of the Republican Party and he has recognized that he can lead them another 10 feet away from shore each time and they will be afraid, really, uh, or willing to go, uh, afraid to confront him or willing, you know, affirmatively willing to go along, uh, with him. You know, I, I find myself thinking uh, of the counterfactual quite a bit. If Trump had been able to find some Republican judges and or some Republican legislators who are willing to clearly subvert the will of the voters in their state right. a, and find some reason to grant him the electoral college votes from Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or, or Michigan, um, would Mitch McConnell or Marco Rubio or Rick Scott raise the peep, or would they have been perfectly willing to steal the election, knowing that it was being stolen, uh, if they thought that Trump could get away with it? And I think their behavior since the election raises a very serious question about whether they would have stood up in any way for small-D democracy if Trump could have figured out a way to steal this election, even if uh, everybody I recognized that was what was happening.
1: Right. I don't think there's any doubt the answer to that question. So, Ron, you you study American, the demographics uh, and get dig into it. (laughs) Uh, You know, we've done a lot of stuff at CNN together Uh, more than anybody I know. When what does it say about the American electorate when, yeah, Joe Biden got 80 million votes. I'm rounding off
2: here. Right. But Donald Trump got 72. I mean, yeah. Yes, um, well, I think the overriding lex- lesson of this election is that we are barely one country at this point, um, and wow. that red America is so alienated from almost everything that is happening in blue America, and that what blue America's vision of what America should be, uh, that uh, it is willing to accept a vessel as flawed as Trump, Largely because he promises to stand up to all of that, you know, that he is the human wall against all of the changes that they don't like. Um, you know, he uh, is 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 a candidate. You know, he's a candidate who, um, you know, as we said, volatile, vulgar, erratic. People being fired left and right, scandal constantly, corruption accusations, over two hundred thousand people dead. Uh, through uh, kind of either in some combination of indifference and incompetence on the pandemic. And yet, uh, you know, he wins 25 states twice. As you say, he wins over 70 million votes. Um, uh, Biden uh, worth talking about more wins 223 House districts or so give or take one or two um, uh, which is more than Obama or Clinton did in 16 and 12 winning the popular vote but which is not a huge number when you're winning by 7 million and what that says to me is that inside Red America the alienation from and the resistance to the democratic vision of what America is becoming and needs to be is so deep that even all of the uh, flaws and demerits of Trump couldn't really shake it, and even with Scranton Joe, middle class Joe on the <laughs> yeah. other side, you know, I mean, when you know, when I mean, yeah. Biden did a little better in some of the mid-sized industrial parts of the country. He did a little, obviously, Erie, Scranton, Green right. Bay, but it really was not a big change, certainly not as big as they were once hoping. The big change was inside of the large metros. He won 91 of the 100 largest counties in America, even more than Clinton did. Um, But I think we see this division being so profound that voters were willing to accept all of Trump's obvious flaws because they saw him as their weapon uh, against all of the changes in American life. You know, in 2012, I wrote that our politics now divide between a coalition of transformation and a coalition of restoration. And the Democratic coalition are the places and the people who are most comfortable with the way the country is changing Mm demographically, culturally, and economically. The Republicans mobilize the voters who are least comfortable with that. And that includes a fair number of non-white voters, as we saw in this this election. Um, uh, And I think that basic fault line is more deeper and 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 more perilous than than ever. Uh,
1: by the way, I'm just curious. Do you think that any of the other uh, Democratic candidates in the primary could have uh, fared better than Biden? Or as far as the Democratic Party do goes, did they
2: end up with the strongest and the best candidate? Uh, short answer is, I believe he's the only one who could have won. I mean, if you look at this result, yeah, uh, the fact that he barely won Pennsylvania <laughs> and Wisconsin middle-class Joe, 77-year-old white guy, it's really hard for me to see how uh, Kamala Harris or Julian Castro or Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders, or really any of them, uh, would have won those states. Now, you know, eventually, uh, and, and we saw the the beginnings of this transformation in this election, uh, the Democrats, if they can start winning the Sun Belt states more regularly, Georgia and Arizona crossing the line this time, North Carolina, again, very close, but very close. disappointing for Democrats. Uh, they will be less hostage to their ability to win enough blue collar whites in the Rust Belt to, to get to 270. Um, but they're not there yet. I mean, they mm-hmm. did have to, you know, uh, and, and I don't think anybody else could have made this work. I'm not even sure anybody else can make this work in 2024. I mean, uh, you know, you, you can you can project it out forward uh, and and say, OK, well, eight more years of demographic change. Non-college whites are declining two points as a share of eligible voters every four years. Uh, you know, the under 18 population is majority non-white. Uh, most of the people aging into the election will be, will be non-white. College whites are slightly growing. You can say, well, OK, well, maybe in eight years you can do this with a uh, you know, a coalition that is more Sunbelt based, more diversity based. But it's probably the likelihood is that in 2024 and certainly in the Senate and the House, you're going to have to compete at least as well as Biden did and probably a little better. Uh, uh, maybe not the presidential, but in the House uh, for those non-college whites. And who else out there is it? Sherrod Brown, maybe. I mean, Sherrod yeah. Brown didn't run. I could imagine him doing as well as Biden did. But mm-hmm. um, I think Democrats are caught in between their past and their future to some extent until the future snaps into place in the Sun Belt and you can reliably win Georgia, Arizona, maybe North Carolina, and maybe eventually Texas, about which there are some positive signs along with the negatives. Until you can do that, you need somebody who can can perform credibly among blue-collar whites in the Rust Belt, and the list of Democrats who can do that is probably pretty short.
1: One other change uh, that that you've written about um, in terms of the Republican Party base is the declining number of um, evangelicals, I guess we call or mm-hmm. uh, you know white Protestant right. That- Right. Which is well, they're remarkable.
2: declining in the society and, and maintaining their presence in the Republican coalition. And, you know, right. I, I sometimes say that the, the, the two parties now offer not only different visions of America, but different versions of America. I mean, the, <laughs> the Republican Party is in many ways, you know, the the uh, America of 20 and 30 years ago. And the Democratic Party is in many ways in the America of 15 years from now. And a good example yeah. is religion. Uh, white Christians were a majority, all white Christians, evangelicals, uh, uh, mainline Protestants, Catholics, uh, other Christian faiths. White Christians were a majority of the country's population for as long as there's been a country, until about 2010, 2011, 2012. Somewhere in there, in the general social survey, it fell under 50%. And right now, White Christians are down to ooh, roughly 42, depending on the data source, 41, 42, 43% of the country. That's it. White Christians are only a little over two-fifths of the country. They are still two-thirds of all Republicans, okay? Um, and uh, the last time that was true for the whole country was like 1998 or 1997. Um, and you can do the same thing, by the way, with race, uh, with gun ownership. Uh, uh, You know, people who are working in manufacturing and agriculture and energy extraction in all of these ways, uh, the Republican Party coalition reflects kind of late, mid to late 20th century America. Meanwhile, in the Democratic coalition now is about one third uh, white Christians, one third non-white Christians and one third uh, people who either don't ascribe to any religious faith or or, or belong to a non-Christian faith. And that, you know, that's probably what America is going to be in like 2034. Or 2035, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and again the same thing with the diversity. I mean, you know, uh, Joe Biden. I I actually didn't calculate. I'm sure Biden got about 42, 43, something, 44 percent of his votes from non-whites. You know, the electorate will be that in you know the 2032 or 2036, and so. It really is, you know, we have sorted out into one coalition that kind of has one foot in the future, one coalition that kind of really has two feet in the past, um, and neither one of them uh, has a, um, a durable advantage over the other in the distribution of power, although Democrats have now, you know, de- the Democratic coalition is larger. There's no question mm-hmm. about it this way. They've won seven out of eight popular vote. No party, as you may know, has ever done that since the formation of the modern party system. No party's ever won seven out of eight. Not even Republicans in the aftermath of Lincoln, not Democrats in the FDR Truman. The best anybody's ever done is six out of eight or seven out of nine. And Democrats have now done seven out of eight. And, you know, you would certainly bet on them if, uh, if, if it goes decently for Biden to make it eight out of nine, whether or not they win the Electoral College. Um, so they have a larger coalition, but the way it's distributed and the way the demographic change has not reached so many of those smaller plains and mountain states, you know, and not to mention in the House, has not extended beyond the, the kind of the, the imaginary beltways around every major metro, it leaves them competing on a pretty narrow uh, terrain. And uh, as much as the Democrats are benefiting from the demographic change and as much as the Republicans have to fear what's happening in metro America Unless someone's going to change the Constitution, Democrats got to figure out a way to win a few more small town and rural votes, I think. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm interested in really your thought about that, because, you know, they've gone through a few cycles now of looking for ways to do that. It's been almost a complete wipeout. Now, that may be because Trump is so uniquely capable of touching the cultural buttons of small town America and appealing to their fear of being eclipsed and marginalized by what's happening in the diverse cities. But, you know, we've had two... Two elections in a row where Democrats could not win a single Senate seat in a state that Trump carried, and in which their um, their ability to win right. house seats beyond kind of the Metro core has been very limited.
1: Right. You know, on that point, which is where I really want to get to next. Uh, let's just pause here for a quick break and then we will be right back on today's edition of the Bill Press Pod. Today's podcast with Ron Brownstein, brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. Next time you uh, shop at Macy's, uh, say thank you to your UFCW member who checks you out. Same next time you shop at Safeway. They're the frontline workers at our retail stores and grocery stores uh, that serve us even during these pandemic days. We salute them. Thank them for their good work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at
3: ufcw.org. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
0: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So... What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: Uh, and we're back with Ron Brownstein, as contributor to CNN uh, from Atlantic Magazine and author of a new book coming out in March. Ron, in March, about... Lock
2: Me in the Water rock uh,
1: me on the water yes all uh, about la in the early, early 1970s, 70s huh? yeah all right great looking for so uh, what about the, what happened in this in the Senate I mean we were uh, maybe you and I weren't predicting but a lot of people were predicting a blue wave uh yep. in late October right that, that, that definitely Democrats were going to pick up maybe 10 15 seats in the house and they were going to take back what? control of this of the Senate uh <laughs> What went wrong? Was it this inability to to reach into the rural and the, um, you know, non-urban, non-big city areas?
2: It really was party-wide, Bill. It was not the Senate candidates, I don't think, or the House candidates, I don't think. It was the inability of Democrats to conquer new terrain. And what I mean by that is uh, the long-term trend in the Senate, as you know, is that it is getting harder for either side to win Senate seats in states that usually vote the other way for president. In um, uh, 2008, there were still six senators who won election in states that voted the other way for McCain, De- Democrats who won in states that voted for McCain, or Repo- Republican, I think Susan Collins in, um, uh, was the only one uh, in, that, in that election, who in, in, in won in states that voted uh, for Obama. By the time we got to 2016, first time ever in American history, every single Senate race went the same way as the presidential race in that state. So, to some extent, and I ended up writing this on Election Day, my piece on Election Day was that the Democrats' chances of winning the Senate uh, were dwindling unless Biden himself was going to win some of these key states, North Carolina, Iowa, uh, and Georgia, um, because what we saw in the late polling. After earlier in the summer and fall, there was a fair amount of split ticket uh, preferences being expressed in the polling. Like Cal Cunningham was running ahead of Biden yeah. in North Carolina, and uh, Teresa uh, 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 Greenfield was running ahead of Biden uh, in Iowa. I, I wrote on election day, and I, I had collected a whole bunch of polling data that was beginning to uh, that was beginning to collapse, and mm. the, the the presidential vote and the Senate vote just as in 2016, were converging. And so it turned out in the end that Susan Collins, to this point, was the only senator in either party in either of the last two presidential elections who won a state uh, that their presidential candidate did not carry. In fact, if you look if you look kind of at it a little more broadly, there were 20 states that voted against Trump in each both both of his campaigns. Democrats now have 39 of their 40 Senate seats, every one but Collins. There mm-hmm. were 25 states that voted for Trump both times, and Republicans now have 47 of their 50 Senate seats, which every one yeah. of them have Sherrod Brown, Tester, and Joe Manchin, which obviously leaves Democrats. In a very difficult position in the Senate because even though they've won the popular vote seven out of eight, Republicans have won more states, mm-hmm. and if the if the presidential is lining up with the uh, the Senate, it makes it very tough. So I would say that you know essentially what happened in the Senate was it reverted to what is becoming the modern pattern, and Biden wasn't able to push out into quite enough places obviously he won arizona and kelly did uh he won colorado and that helped uh hickenlooper but he didn't win iowa and he didn't win north carolina he did win georgia and we'll see how that how that goes the house to a surprising extent is pretty much the same story like in the end you know joe biden i think i wrote a piece uh, the best estimates now are that he won somewhere around 223 house districts um now That is better than Clinton did. She won 209, I think, and Obama, no, she won 205. And Obama in 2012 won 209 while winning the popular vote. Uh, They lost most House districts. Um, Biden did better, and that reflects the Democrats' expanding reach into suburbs, white-collar suburban districts around the country. But 223 is not a big number. And in the end, yes, there will be about 10 or 11 Republicans who won in districts that Biden did like uh, Nebraska 2. It looks like Texas 24, some of the Orange County seats. Um, But there are also about 10 or 11 Republicans, uh, I'm sorry, 10 or 11 Democrats who won seats that Trump did. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it really isn't kind of comparative crossover that decided it. It's the fact that even in a 7 million vote election victory, Biden was only able to win 223 house seats. And what didn't happen, what, what happened in the House was, I think, pretty clear, is that in 2018, we saw a big suburban wave for the Democrats. And it not only rolled through places where they had been strong before, like Philadelphia or Northern Virginia or New Jersey, it extended, right? It, it reached Richmond and um, Dallas and Houston and Atlanta. Um, and what Democrats thought was that that was going to keep going in this election. I mean, I don't know how many of the seats they lost, they, they were surprised at losing. I mean, th- these are very Trumpy districts, most of them, uh, that uh, were gonna be hard to hold with him on the ballot, but they thought they would offset them because they thought there would be new suburban seats that were even more Republican than the ones they won in 2018 that would fall this time. Places like uh, Chip Roy's district, you know, between Austin and San Antonio or uh, Missouri, St. Louis suburbs or Indianapolis suburbs. That didn't happen. Biden didn't win the seats. And Democrats didn't win the seats. so I kind of go back to my point about the high water mark. Yes, 7 million vote win, 223 seats in the House. Um, but, you know, they, 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 it, it wasn't like the wave kept going into a lot of new terrain at the presidential level, to some extent. Gwinnett and Cobb, yeah, and they won that House seat. But, you know, Biden ended up not winning Indiana 5 and he ended mm-hmm. up not winning Missouri 2. And Democrats thought he was going to win all of those and that they would win as a result.
1: Were you surprised? You referenced it a little bit earlier. Were you surprised that Trump actually uh, picked up uh, and improved in some um, Latino districts, particularly? Yeah.
2: yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I think I was. Um, uh, I don't think you know. I don't think I was surprised about Florida. Let me leave that aside. I mean, South Florida yeah. is its own beast. Um, uh, and you know, it's its own thing and, uh, the, the socialism arguments and all of that was, was very effective, but it seemed, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Rio Grande Valley was, you know, catastrophic for Democrats. Um, and I think there's evidence, you know, from the precinct level stuff that, um, Trump may have improved slightly in a lot of places among Hispanics now, Arizona, Nevada, stayed pretty strong. Uh, Black voters, too, he did a little better. Um, And, you know, Democrats, I think, really have to examine what happened. I I, I offer two thoughts on that. One is that if you look, and and I mentioned this in, in in a story, if you look at polling about values, okay, there is a fair, there's a bigger share of Black and Hispanic voters who express The same kind of anxieties about as non-college whites about changing gender roles and uh, Mm -hmm. changing cultural mores, uh, then vote for Republicans. I mean, there is an audience. I mean, there you know, there's an audience among black and Hispanic men uh, for some of Trump's implicit and explicit kind of appeals to traditional gender, you know, Uh, solidarity. And there is an audience among uh, which, you know, was kind of suppressed for a while. But I think Trump activated there. There there are there's a share of the African-American community that isn't so happy about large scale immigration. I mean, that was something we experienced in California. in the Absolutely. And, and, you know, a majority of black voters voted for Prop 187, um, according to the exit poll at the time. So he he had an audience for some of his cultural argument. Uh, And then second, um, I think he had an audience for reopening the economy no matter what in some of these minority communities. Even though they are being ravaged the most by coronavirus, obviously they're being hurt. Now, having said all this, he definitely he seemed to improve his share among both black and Hispa- and especially Hispanic voters. On the other hand, he inspired so many people to come out and <laughs> vote against him right. that his That's- net deficit of votes in many of these places was greater. Right, mm-hmm. so You can get a bigger Which- share you know, if you, if you go from 11 to 12% of black voters and black voters go from 10,000 to 20,000, you lose more, you lose them by a bigger net total. And that piece of the equation you can't forget uh, as well. I think there is obviously a limit to how far uh, the Republican Party can go into um, building a beachhead in those communities while embracing as overt an appeal to white racial resentment as Trump does. But it does suggest that if you dial that back you can find a way to dial that back. Some of your other cultural arguments might find an audience and you can kind of chip away at the overwhelming Democratic numbers. I was surprised by the Asian-American numbers, too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Trump what? did better I, I, uh, among all three, Hispanics, black and, and, and Asian. Americans. Now, again, more turnout, bigger net deficit, but a higher share.
1: Uh, well, back in those days when you and I were both active in California politics, uh, I always, we always considered the Latino vote. It was a conservative vote. It was a largely Republican vote until Prop 187. And for the very reasons you articulated. Mm -hmm. A lot of cultural
2: conservatism. And look, I mean... Small businesses, um, family-oriented, Catholic. The the evangelical side of the Latino community. um, You know, Texas was kind of interesting because, I mean, obviously Democrats were very disappointed by how Texas fell out. Biden ended up losing by six, um, five or six. They didn't win the state house. They didn't win... Uh, any of their targeted House districts—I mean, kind of stunning that they they could not win—and then they lost uh, Will Hurd's district again. Um, but they significantly improved in the metros. I mean, they you know they did do a lot better in Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Austin, and even the inner suburbs of those places like Collin and Denton and Williamson and Hayes. And it does say that if you can solve your problem in the Rio Grande Valley, which should be solvable i mean uh if biden puts effort into it um you can bring that into play and again Mm -hmm. to my point from when we started you know in the long run i don't you know i coined the phrase the blue wall in 2009 right i it was there's a a (laughs) national journal there's a national journal cover and there's a there's a story i wrote and the lead is call it the blue wall so i i i as the father of the blue wall i can say that michigan pennsylvania and wisconsin were always the most loosely attached. They were the least like the other states in terms of their really? demography, yeah. their religious background. And I don't think we will ever get to a point again where Democrats can rely on those states. They might win them. It's not saying mm-hmm. they're always going to lose them, but it's not like they're, they're not California, Washington, and Oregon, or you know New York, right. Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Um, and given that, the inexorable necessity is to figure out ways to win more of everything Electoral college votes, Senate seats, House seats across the Sunbelt. And right. I think that is, the, that is the challenge of the 2020s for the Democrats.
1: All right, Rob, we can't let you go before um, I ask you just a little bit about uh, what we've seen so far in the transition for the last month yeah. uh, of Joe Biden. How do you think Joe Biden's handling the transition? What do, you, what, what, what do his cabinet appointments that we've seen so far uh, tell us uh, about what, what we can expect from a Biden administration? I don't think we have a pudding yet. I mean,
2: I really, yeah, I think that um, uh, I think his appointments, you know, the the first round of appointments uh, in the White House and Tony Blinken, as secretary of state, you know, he's 77 years old and he's comfortable with who he's comfortable with, you know. And I think that that was the initial round. Uh, And then I think he's kind of been reacting to that a little bit, uh, pressure for more diversity uh, in both gender and race. Um, you know, the all-female um, uh, White House communications team. You know, somebody said to me, you know, um, you know, uh, it still feels a little like the guys make the product and we're supposed to sell the product, you know, and, and, <laughs> and um, I thought that was an interesting observation. Uh, and that, that that is, you know, but I do think it, look, he, he has a difficult job. Of managing this coalition, uh, particularly because the margins are so narrow in Congress. I mean, you have, you know, you have the left who wants things, and the center who is very spooked, as you can imagine, as you would be if that many of the Democrats in Trump districts lost in 2020. They're going to be careful about what they vote for in the next two years. So he's got this kind of internal tension. And, and, and then this external reality that he's got like a four-seat majority in the House, maybe five, and at best a 50-50 Senate. And I think the, I think the, the, the appointments kind of reflect, uh, I, I wouldn't say uncertainty, but not putting all of your chips on one, uh, one color, you know, one, one, uh, one dice uh, about how to handle that. I mean, he's got some people who are more acceptable to the left. He's got some people who are more acceptable to the center. Uh, he's so far kept out. The folks that the left is most mobilized against. Um, I, I feel like, uh, uh, as I said, the pudding hasn't formed, or he's keeping his options open. Like I don't think I, I, I don't think he's like he's given us in um, uh, in, 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 in a, 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 a a pure signal of where he's going. And I think it's more like he's keeping his options open to go in different directions and maybe to go in different directions at once.
1: Yeah, indeed, it's going to be fun. It's always fun to watch. It's uh, no matter no matter how bad it gets. It's always fun to watch and to be part of. And Ron Brownstein, you are one of the best observers of the American politics uh, that I know. And it's so good of you to give us some time uh, time today. We look forward to talking to you again when your book
2: comes out. Oh, that'd be great, Bill. And and, and you're in the book. You're you are you are you are in the book in Jerry Brown's orbit in 1974. What were you doing? Office of Policy.
1: Uh, Office of Planning and Research. Office of Planning and Research. Right. Director. Right. And by the way, Ron, I am still in Jared Brown's orbit. There you go. That's <laughs> all we all in some way. Oh, uh, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. Thanks, Ron. Thank you, Bill. Good to see you. And that's it for today's podcast with Ron Brownstein from CNN and from The Atlantic. And by the way, on the episode notes for today's podcast, we'll provide a link to some of Ron's recent articles for The Atlantic and for CNN thank you again for listening. And now, before we go, we remind you one more time, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to The Bill Press Pod. Please, just wherever you're listening to this podcast, pull up The Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. And then one other thing, stay strong, stay safe, stay sane until we see you on the next edition of The Bill Press Pod.